Well, hello, Pastor Matt here. Just want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in to this message. We here at New Life Baptist Church hope that in making these resources available to the public, that we'll help to edify the body of Christ at large, and that you personally will increase in your knowledge of God, leading to a deeper love for Him. Let's give them a round of applause. And if you'll remain standing, while I've got you up, let's read our scripture. 1 John, turn over to 1 John. Some people call it Little John because it's a much smaller version of John. 1 John, the letter of John. And we're going to read chapter 1, it's verses 1 through 4. This is going to be the text that we spend our time in today as we begin our new series in uh, 1 John. This is the Word of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. And testify to it. I'm sorry, I lost my place. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. One last time, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, there's uh, not much else to say that hasn't been said already, Lord, but we just ask that you bless this message, that you prepare our hearts to receive your word, and that you would sanctify us in the truth, Lord. Your word is truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, you can be seated. We'll have you stand in another 10 minutes, okay? So we're going to hit the ground running. We're, we're starting this new series in 1 John. So for the next um, several weeks, we will be in 1 John. So as you can see in the bulletin, I would just like to reiterate and encourage you to read ahead. Uh, you know where we're going to be, so read ahead. Study it for yourself in your own personal study time. Pray over the book um, and ask for the Lord's uh, wisdom and guidance as we proceed through 1 John. I've titled this series, uh, Tested Assurance. So that will be the series that we are in, is Tested Assurance. And it will become clear why it is called that, because this book is full of test yourself, test yourself, test yourself. How many of you know that an assurance of salvation is very important? It's very important to have the assurance that I know I am saved. Josh was reading from Romans 8 earlier about the Spirit within us testifying and, and proclaiming, Abba, Father. And so that is one way that we can have the assurance of our salvation is the Spirit within us proclaims that we are children of God. 
But before we get, uh, before I get ahead of myself and give away the whole series, um, that's going to be what we're looking at is, is how to have assurance of salvation. There are some 26 different spots where John is going to point us to uh, test ourselves to see if we're truly in the faith. A tested assurance, no doubt, is a blessed assurance. In order to have the blessed assurance that I know I am his, we must test that assurance so that we know it is real. Now, 1 John, obviously, we believe it was written by the Apostle John. You're all familiar with the gospel according to John. Now, John was a really humble man. He calls himself in the gospel that he wrote um, the, the disciple that Jesus loved the most. So he's really humble, you know. Yeah, I'm uh, the disciple that was Jesus' favorite. Um, the disciple that was definitely better than the rest of the other guys, but I'm not going to say that. I'll save that for later. Is That's this guy. Really, really humble man. Um, that was a joke. But he calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. He was very close and near to the Lord. Certainly all the disciples walked with him and talked with him and spent time with him. But John seems to have this unique, intimate relationship with the Savior. He was there at his, uh, right next to him at the Last Supper, and he rec- they reclined. Um, as they were reclining at the Last Supper, John was there. It was the beloved disciple who was there. He witnessed many important events uh, that many of the other disciples didn't get to witness. Jairus' daughter, Christ resurrected her from the dead. John was there. The Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus pulled back the layer of his, of his humanity to show and reveal his deity. John was one of the very few who were there. John ran to the empty tomb. John was at the foot of the cross as the Savior exhaled his last breaths. John was tasked with taking Mary as his own, Jesus' mother Mary, as Jesus was on the cross. So John has witnessed some very deep personal moments in the life of Christ. and He was very near and close to him. Indeed, he was the beloved disciple It's interesting to note that it's believed that John actually wasn't martyred. Everybody else was martyred brutally. But John lives on to sometime between 90 and 100 A.D. He wrote the book of Revelation, very, very old of age. So at the time of the writing of this book, it's believed that it was around 90 A.D. Now why is that significant? Because John was a very old man. At this point, probably some, probably north of 80 years old when he writes this book. That is significant because at this stage, probably all of the other apostles have been martyred and are passed on into glory. So what is on John's heart then? What is on John's mind? What's going on in the churches And you'll notice that it's not written to a particular church. We read it. John just hits the ground running, that which was from the beginning. 
He doesn't take the time like the Apostle Paul to say, Paul, a servant of God, a servant of Jesus Christ, a doulos of Jesus Christ. He just starts that which was from the beginning. It's believed that he had great respect in the area, all the churches that he was an elder over. So they would have known this is from the beloved, most humble disciple. John is writing this book to encourage a church that is hurting. They're hurting because many of the people who were part of the body have they've seen a mass exodus of people. You've heard the verse, they went out from us. But they went out from us because they were not of us. What John is addressing here is a very dangerous heresy that was going around at that time known as Gnosticism. There were these Gnostics. It's from uh, basically, it's really, really long story, all that they believed. They taught a whole mix of crazy, crazy things. But they essentially believed that God, Yahweh, Abba, Father, is not the one who created the earth. They believed that it was, they called them the demiurges, who created the earth. And they said that because of sin, because there's wickedness and evil in the world. So they were saying, there's no way a perfect God could create something imperfect. So it must not have been God. They actually attributed, essentially, he is Satan who created the earth. I mean, it, it kind of sounds respectful, right? That God is so perfect, he couldn't create something imperfect. It almost sounds like, well, I, I get that. But to attribute the creation of all things to Satan, hopefully I don't have to explain to you this morning why that's clearly wrong. Certainly Satan is not God Almighty. They believed that you could pursue a secret wisdom. And in the pursuit of this, the light that is within you would illuminate. And essentially, you would tap into this secret deity that's already within you. Sure sounds a lot like a lot of the New Age teaching that we see today. And certainly it has its roots in Gnosticism, this secret wisdom that nobody has access to. Now this is important it's important because as we read through here, you're going to see John use 39 different times the word know, K-N-O-W. He's doing that because the, uh, the Greek word for Gnostic or Gnosticism is know. It's knowledge. So what John is trying to explain to the churches that he's writing to throughout this book is that they're trying to teach a secret knowledge that you already know. Do you understand the play on words? They're trying to point you to this secret knowledge that exists somewhere outside of Jesus, but if you are in Christ, you already know all that you need to know. And so he will point them to this and try to give them an assurance of their salvation by telling them, you already know Christ. But in order for us to get there, to have that assurance, our assurance must be tested. So on the road there, we're going to test ourselves against the word that, that John writes here. 
So that is why we're calling this Tested Assurance. And the aim of his book here, if you flip over to chapter 5, look at verse 13. He gives it away. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? That you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, there it is again, that you have eternal life. Church, what could be better than to be able to lay your head to rest at night knowing I have eternal life? What brings you greater comfort as you are on the hospital bed breathing your last breaths and you know I have eternal life. This body may pass away. Indeed, it will. It must. But I have eternal life. As soon as this one is over, I go on into the greater life. And that's what we want to see from 1 John. Now, we're going to see him say quite often, I am writing these things, or we are writing these things because, because, because. And certainly, I'm not taking away from all of those instances of him saying that. But they all culminate in this last final statement as he's closing out his letter. That I'm writing this to you so that you will know that you have eternal life. To give you an example of what that is going to look like, if you go back to chapter 1, look at Verse 6, these are the tests that we will see. He says, if we, have, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So this is what the tests are going to look like that we will test ourselves with as we go on. Okay, that is our introduction And so I I think it's so significant here that this book is about giving assurance of salvation. So look at how John starts. Let's read it again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. You see how he's starting. He's he's starting off in a book about wanting to give you assurance of your salvation. He starts off giving you an assurance that Jesus Christ is real. That's what he does, isn't it? That which we was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard. He's pointing us to the reality that Jesus Christ was a real person. He's pointing us to the fact that you don't serve an idea. Your your faith is not based on some philosophy. It's not based in some secret hidden knowledge. It's based in a person. His name is Jesus. And he was real. And we walked with him. We heard him. 
We have seen him with our eyes. He is real. So our first section here is we will examine how John is going to give us his testimony of Jesus. It's verses 1 and 2. It is the testimony of Christ. Doesn't this sound familiar, the way that he opens this? Doesn't this remind you of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, that which was from the beginning, which was the Word. And he mentions that again there in verse, right before verse 2, he talks about concerning the Word of life. He's talking about the same person. The Gospel of John opens up speaking of the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God, and the, this letter of John is opening up the same way. That God is not just some idea. He's not just hidden in the heavens. He's not the stars. He's not astronomy or astrology or whatever it's called. He's not Miss Cleo. He, he's not a statue. He's not a figment of your imagination. He's not the dream that you had after you had a, ate a bad burrito. Jesus is real. He's testifying. He's giving his eyewitness testimony as if we were in a court of law. Do you know this Jesus of Nazareth, John? Why, yes, I do. Do you mean, are you referring to that which was from the beginning? Yes, I know him. We heard him. We have seen him with our eyes. But as if that were not enough to just say that we heard him and we saw him with our eyes. Have you ever said this phrase, do my eyes deceive me? Am I, hold on, in the cartoons they, they make that sound. Let me see. Let me clear my ears. Maybe I have wax in them and I didn't hear that right. My wife says that I'm blind. But, you know, we're just going to leave that one there. That one, that one still hurts. So as if, in case that's not enough for the readers, what does John say? Look at what he says. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. You see, what these Gnostics were trying to teach was some mystic, vague, like foggy, imaginary, just unattainable God, this, this unobtainable deity who existed in a whole other realm. But what John is saying is the God that you serve is real. He, he walked this earth. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He was walking with us. We heard him speak. We saw him with our eyes. But not only that, we looked upon him and we touched him. You see, you can't see it in the English, but in the original, looked upon means to gaze. It actually has this sense of gazing in admiration. You can almost imagine John, as he's writing this, thinking back to when he saw the resurrected Savior. and He said, look, put your 
put your finger here. There's the hole where the nail was in my hand when I was hanging on the cross bearing your sin. Don't doubt, believe. And he writes it. We saw it. We examined him. He was real. I saw him on the cross. I saw him gasp for his last breath and say, My Father, into your hand I commend my spirit. And he gave up the ghost and he hung there lifeless. And then I rushed to the tomb that I saw him. We buried him there. And I rushed to the tomb and it was empty. And then I saw him in his resurrected body. He's real. He's real. He's real. Church, your faith is not imaginary. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. God himself took on human likeness. And that's what John is testifying to. I saw him. In his gospel, he says, we beheld his glory. The glory as the only one from the Father. What must this have been like? You see, through, through this message, this message of Jesus of Nazareth who came and took on flesh, who is God, has always been unpopular. They killed Christ for it. They killed the apostles for it. Satan hates it. So he's always had false teachers to lure people away and say, not that way, this way. Come over here. The Jesus that we have is better. It's cooler. It's more interesting. There's more for you here on this earth. If you come over here, listen to this message. John is saying, they might have great sounding words. But what we have is eyewitness testimony that God took on flesh. So to doubt his message is to call him a liar because he walked this earth. C.S. Lewis said, he's either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. He's either a liar because all the stuff that he said during his life was not true and he just lied or he was a lunatic. Maybe he said all the things that he said because he was crazy. Or everything that he said, he meant it because he is Lord. All of us will have to answer that question for ourselves. Is he liar? lunatic or Lord to you. In order for us to have an assurance of salvation, we need to have an assurance of a Savior. And that's what John provides to us here in the beginning. But in verse 2, he goes on to say, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it. We need to grasp that the life, the Word, God Himself took on flesh. He became a man, and this is what John is reiterating, that the life, this word of life, look at the words that he's using. He doesn't say, he who was from the beginning, who we have heard, who we have seen, who we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. He says, 
that and which. Because he's referring to the word of life. That's what he says at the end of verse 1. Concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. He's saying that eternal life, the word of life, is a person. It's not an idea. It's not a thought. It's not mysticism. It's not a statue. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. This should fill your heart with comfort. Knowing that the God that I pray to at night, the God that I try to cling to in the moments of suffering, the God that I raise my hands and sing aloud to, the God that I read about in this Bible, He is real. He took on flesh. He suffered. He's not fake. He's not imaginary. He really is resurrected right now. Church, that gives you confidence when you pray. That gives you confidence when you study. That gives you confidence when your world is shaking and it's shattering and you don't have a clue what to do or where to look. Look to Christ. Because He is real. We could spend all day there, but let's move on. The second section is the proclamation of Christ. Isn't it something that Jesus so impacted the apostles? He so impacted their lives and their hearts and their minds that they had to turn and proclaim this message to them. Look at verse 2. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. And we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. I want you to look closely at that. He says we proclaim to you the eternal life. We talk about the importance of every single word. He doesn't say we proclaim to you a really good way to get to eternal life. He doesn't say, we proclaim to you one of the easiest ways to have eternal life. We proclaim to you ten steps to eternal life. We proclaim to you a way to have eternal life. What does he say? What's that three-letter word? The eternal life. What does that mean? That is an absolute statement. There is no other eternal life. We proclaim to you that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no life outside of Him. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. No one has eternal life except through faith in Christ. Period. It's the only way. It is the Eternal life. In other words, Christianity is not just a way of life. Christianity is knowing the word and the life. There is no life outside of Christ because he is the life. Try as many religions, philosophies, and schools of thought might 
They simply cannot offer eternal life because it is only found in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Notice here, he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Do you see that they didn't sit on the information They did not sit on this incredible news of eternal life through Jesus Christ. What did they do? They turned and proclaimed it. They turned and told the world about eternal life through Jesus. Church, you know what I'm about to say. That means that we must also. We must tell the world of this eternal life. We must proclaim the eternal life, that he was made manifest, that he came in the flesh, that he really did walk a perfect, blameless life and go to a cross where he was nailed there and the Father poured out his wrath on him. This is real. This isn't just a story. It's not just a Sunday school message. This is life-changing completely paradigm-shifting message is the eternal life through Christ. What a tragedy it would be to surround yourself with people who do not have eternal life and not point them to the eternal life. If your friend was next to you and you had a bottle of water, and they were dying of thirst in the middle of a hot day, would you withhold that water from them? Or would you say, here, please drink. I have plenty. And so it is with the message of Christ. We have what people need. We have what thirsty souls are looking for, that they're searching for in the bottom of a bottle that they're searching for in bars and nightclubs, that they're searching for in promiscuous relationships, that they're searching for in gathering wealth, that they're searching for in people, that they're searching for in material possessions. We have it, and it's the eternal life in Jesus Christ. We must proclaim this message. We must proclaim of Christ. Why? Look at what he says. He gives us the reason. In verse 3, he says, We proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. We proclaim to you this message so that you too can have fellowship with us. Do you see that? The aim of their proclamation is that the listeners might have fellowship with them. Now, I know in the Baptist world, we hear the word fellowship, and we say the word fellowship, and we mean splitting a bucket of fried chicken, right? That's, that's fellowship to Baptist folk, and I'm not here to condemn that, okay? By all means, let's gather t- together, and let's spend time with one another, but that's not f- true fellowship, True fellowship is sharing and being united in the same spirit. What spirit is that? The spirit of Christ. 
It is when we both share of the same Savior, when we both share in the fellowship of the Father and of the Son, that is fellowship. Church, we can do that from afar. We can do that close together. We can do that at five-minute intervals. We can do that in many ways because fellowship is not about a physical interaction. It is about a spiritual encounter with God Almighty. Thus, true fellowship can only be had among Christian brothers and sisters because it is the Spirit of God who unites us. What are you saying, Pastor? Does that mean that People who aren't Christian can't share chicken together? Obviously not. But it means that true, meaningful fellowship can only be had with those that we share that spirit with. Well, if you're surrounded by people who you do not have this fellowship with, what are you to do? Proclaim to them eternal life. Why? So that they might have fellowship with us. Do you see these Gnostics? They wanted this secret, hidden knowledge in this secret club. It was all for them. It was all about them. But the Christian message is, come in here. It's awesome. Jesus is amazing. Come see him. Come behold his beauty. Come hear of his worth. Come hear of his sacrifice. Come and taste and partake of eternal life. He gives it freely. That is the message of Christianity, isn't it? It's not come to church with me. By all means, invite people to church, sure. But is that the proclamation of the gospel? Certainly not. Did John write, we proclaim to you that you should join us at church at 11 a.m. this Sunday? Does anybody's translation translation say that? If it does, get a new Bible, please. No, what does it say? We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard. We proclaim to you of Jesus of Nazareth. So that... We can have fellowship. Look at verse 3 again at the end. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't this amazing that John opens up by speaking of having walked with Christ? He spent time with Him. He heard Him. He saw Him. He gazed upon Him. He touched Him. And here He is, some 50 to 60 years after Christ's death and resurrection, saying, we have fellowship with him. How sweet it is to have this fellowship with the Father. How sweet it is to be just a person who lives in Lubbock or Wolferth or somewhere in West Texas. I'm not an apostle. I'm not anything. I'm just a person but I have fellowship with the Father. I have fellowship with the creator of the universe. I have fellowship with the Savior who took on flesh. I know him. And the spirit within me cries out, Abba, Father. If you don't know this sweet fellowship, 
And we proclaim to you eternal life in Jesus Christ. If you've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, why would you leave here without doing so? If you've never come to know the eternal life for yourself, we invite you into this fellowship with the Father and the Son. You see, Jesus came in the flesh as we have seen. He lived the perfect life that you and I are incapable of living. You try to be a good person, don't you? But every one of us has transgressed against God's law. All of us have. So Jesus, in his great love for us, came and did it for us. He lived the life that you and I could never live, that we're incapable of living. And he went to the cross. He died on that cross bearing your sin. Every single sin you've ever committed was in the body of Jesus. And as that happened, the father looked at his own son, his only begotten son, and poured out his wrath on him. So that now, for those of us who put our faith in Christ and repent of our sins, he can look upon you and pour out his blessing on you. Repent and believe the gospel this morning and have fellowship with us. If you are in Christ, and if you do know this eternal life, the message is the same. Look to Jesus this morning. Whatever's going on in your life, I don't know. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Look to Jesus, who took on flesh. Look to Jesus, who is at the right hand of the Father. Let's stand. John finishes up this section by saying, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Jesus says in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. One of my favorite preachers, Stephen Lawson, says it this way, that the greatest joy is to know Jesus Christ. The second greatest joy is to make him known. Church, let's make him known this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your precious word. 